Our reading from God's Word this morning for our sermon text will be Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. There is a a crisis in the heart of Christians today. Something for us to reflect on this New Year's Day. There is a crisis in the heart of Christians. When John wrote Revelation 1, the church lived in a state of persecution. That's not us. John's churches suffered. Our churches are distracted, especially in the West. They lived in persecution, but we live in a commercial. The truth is that we're being harvested by algorithms. The church of Jesus Christ has become a product in a marketplace. And so there's a crisis in the heart of Christians in the West today. The world is designed to rip your attention away from what really matters. Everything in the world is trying to rip your attention away from what really matters. And no generation of human beings has ever lived with unlimited knowledge and entertainment in its pocket. I don't think you can exaggerate that. There is no generation of human beings that could truly understand the kind of power you're carrying in your pocket. And it's for that reason that no generation has ever said to a corporation, you can have five hours a day of my life to sell me, to change me, to influence me. And that's why if you asked most people what they believe and why, 
behind their answer, the real answer, is a corporation. People used to get their beliefs from their families, from their religion, from their nation, and now they get them from commercials. And people don't recognize this. The algorithm is teaching people what to believe. The algorithm is influencing them. It's changing them. The world wants you. The world is not harmless. Every part of modern life is designed to harvest your attention and to transform that harvest into revenue. And we don't see it. We fail to see this. We think that technology is innocent, that it's neutral, and it's not. If you begin from Genesis 1, you find technology is one of the premier sites of the powers and the principalities in our world. We don't see it, but converts do see it. Converts leaving the world, leaving these these environments, they see it. The writer Paul Kingsnorth became a Christian just two years ago. He was very much not a Christian before he came to Christ. He was a Wiccan. He was a radical environmentalist. And he literally worshipped demons. Literally. And when he became a Christian, he noticed something. And he says this in an interview. You can listen to the way he describes it. He says, technology is quite demonic at this point. I mean in a literal sense. Things are coming through these screens that are not good things. This is quite dark stuff. And it's, it's quite literally from realms that we shouldn't be messing with. This man hasn't been a Christian for three years and he sees it. It's not about money. It's about your soul. It's about your soul. What you give your attention to matters forever. And the greatest need you have in your life is to protect your eyes. And it's to get an accurate glimpse of the truth. It's to fix your attention on Christ. It's to get a fresh sight of His beauty and His majesty. It's to see Him in His splendor. It's what Paul said when he said, when he asked that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. There is nothing that actually matters except Him. Nothing. And there's no moment that matters more than the moment that you stand before Christ. And what we have before us this morning in Revelation 1, in this passage, is not a puzzle, it's a portrait. And it's, it's there to protect our eyes. It's there to speak to us. And it's this portrait, I pray, that God will use to deliver us from distraction. So we'll look at this passage in three parts. We'll begin with the background in verses 9 through 11. And then look at the vision in verses 12 through 16. And then the benediction. And finally, look at two ways that we can apply this passage to our hearts. Most of you know that Revelation is written by John. By the Apostle John. But that matters because John knew Jesus. He lived with Him. John traveled with Him. He ate with Him. 
John is the only disciple that saw the crucifixion with his own eyes. Everyone else fled. John was there standing next to the Lord's mother, watching the Lord suffer his last moments. And we have to remember that when we look at his reaction to Jesus in this passage. John says in, in verse 9 that, that he was on Patmos. He says it was on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was an island off of the coast of Asia Minor. And that's probably where John ministered, if church tradition is right. John had probably been exiled or imprisoned to Patmos. And this is interesting because he connects being in Patmos with being what he says in verse 9, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So it's likely that John's in a state of persecution himself, that he's been exiled to this island, and in one sense he's cut off from his ministry, and there's nothing left for him to do to help. And this is very important as we listen to what the Lord has to say to him. You'll remember that the Gospel of John ends with Jesus telling Peter that Peter would suffer. And Peter turns around and says, well, what about John? John was following behind them at a distance. And Jesus says, if I want him to stay until I return, what is that to you? And here John is. Everyone else is dead. Every other apostle has died. And John is a very old man. That moment in the Gospel of John happened decades ago. Revelation was written at the end of the first century. So right now, it's 2023. And this is like Jesus having been raised in the 80s. It's been a long time. And John hasn't seen Jesus with his own eyes in decades. And so John's the only one left. And here he is. He's still ministering. He says it's on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that he's on Patmos. He says in verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's the only time this phrase occurs in the New Testament, the Lord's day. And there's a few ways to understand this, but I actually think this happened during worship. I think being in the Spirit on the Lord's day probably means standing in front of the church leading worship. And I think that's the point, because John hears a voice behind him, and he realizes that someone else is actually leading worship. That's the point. That's why the voice comes from behind him. He's standing in front of the church. He's ministering to the congregation. And he hears a voice from behind him because he's not the worship leader. Someone else is. He says in verse 10, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Remember, John's an apostle. Tradition has him in Asia Minor. And then this list of churches are all churches in Asia Minor. So these are probably John's churches. This is probably why the Lord addresses John about these churches. They were John's churches. They're not just random churches that John's thinking, okay, well, I guess I'll say something to this church in Birmingham that I've never been to. But these are his churches. And this is fascinating, isn't it? Because you can exile an apostle, but you can't quarantine the word of God. 
People think Jesus is some figure frozen in time. They think of him as this, this image on a wall in an empty church. But that's not John's Jesus. John's Jesus is alive. John's Jesus is our contemporary. He lives and he breathes and he speaks. And, and here in Revelation 1, his voice was like a trumpet. He has something to say. John's Jesus has something to say. And so that's the background in verses 9 through 11. Now we see the vision in verses 12 through 16. John turns around because he's standing there and he hears this voice say, write what you see. And so he turns around and the fascinating thing is that he doesn't even recognize the voice. Did you notice that? He doesn't know it's Jesus speaking. He's standing there leading worship. He hears a voice and he doesn't even know it's the Lord's voice. A man that fished with Jesus. A man that wept with Jesus. A man that traveled with him, lived with him, heard him teach for hours and hours and hours. If it had been four decades from now and Doug said something standing behind you, you would know it was Doug's voice. But John doesn't know this is Jesus' voice. He says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Not I turned to see the Lord, but I turned to see the voice. So he doesn't recognize the voice. And his eyes don't help either. When John turns around, reality starts to dissolve. He turns and, and suddenly he's no longer leading worship on Patmos. He's in another dimension. He was in the church, but now he's in the temple. That's what this imagery means here. That's why there's lampstands. It's why Jesus is wearing a robe. It's why Jesus has feet that look like bronze. John is in the temple. He's been ported to the Holy of Holies. And what he sees there, he sees the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest is in the midst of the lampstands and he's trimming them to keep them burning on the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the high priest who offers his own body as a sacrifice to God. And notice that when John turns, he doesn't see the Lord. He sees the lampstands. If you want to get to Jesus, you have to go through the lampstands because the lampstands are where Jesus is. You don't get to bypass the church to get to Jesus. People do weird things with the book of Revelation. Especially Americans, if I'm honest. People think the book of Revelation is a puzzle to solve. They think they need to dissect it to figure out when the world is going to end. And other people see that. And they decide to ignore Revelation. But did you know that Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it? That's in verse 3, right here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And this portrait we see here in verses 12 through 16 is why it's a blessing. Because you get to see something when you read Revelation. You get to see something. You get to see Jesus as He really is. 
You get to see a portrait of Jesus that undeceives you. If everything in the world is trying to rip your attention away from what really matters, this passage here rips it back and puts it right on Christ and makes you lock eyes with him and says, this is all that matters. This man is the only thing that matters. We see a portrait of Jesus here that undeceives us. You see him in the Holy of Holies. And he's unencumbered by the humiliation of his earthly life. In Jesus' earthly life, he's shrouded. He's veiled. You might have done business, you might have transacted business with this man on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of June and not thought twice about him. But that's not what happens here. When John sees the unveiled Christ and the glory and majesty of his beauty, it undoes him. He's like the prophet Isaiah that sees the Lord on the throne and cries out, woe is me. And John tells us in his gospel that Isaiah saw Jesus. John tells us Isaiah saw Jesus in the gospel of John. And that's why he cried out, woe is me. And this is your Lord. He's adorned with luxury. I mean, do you see this here? He's, he's not prepared for battle. I mean, you think you would turn and look at Jesus and you'd see him in his regalia ready for battle. And he's not. He's wearing a robe. He's wearing a robe. And in verse 13, it says he's wearing a golden sash. He's adorned with luxury. He stands there indestructible. This man's not dressed for battle. He's leading worship. This isn't a puzzle. It's a portrait. And here, you're seeing the Lord and His majesty. That's what this book is about. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the name of the book. It's the first phrase in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. And the reason it blesses you is the greatest need in your life is an accurate glimpse of Christ. It's to see Him. Once you see Jesus, nothing else can harvest your attention. Nothing else can have your heart. Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a fresh or a new affection. Once you have something that grips your heart, you can't stop meditating on it. You're in conversation with it. It owns you. You're fascinated with it. That's what, that's what we have here. It's why Paul prays that we might have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Do you pray that? Do you ask God for that? Is that your prayer? If you were to sit here with the Apostle Paul and to say, will you just pray for me? And you think He's going to unveil some mystery to you. And instead, He's going to pray this. He's going to pray that God the Father might give you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He's going to pray Ephesians 1. So do you pray that? Verses 12 through 16, we see Christ. We see the real Christ. John knew Jesus. He lived with him. John saw Jesus cry. John saw him weep over Lazarus. And what he sees here is so otherworldly, only the symbols can describe it. There's only symbols that can tell you what it is that John saw. 
And so what John does is he reaches for the Old Testament to tell us what he sees. And nearly every single image here comes from the Old Testament. And that's not to remove us from reality. It's to take us deeper. The symbols take us deeper. The symbols are a mercy to us. The Lord told Moses, no man shall see me and live. In Exodus 33. And so the Lord gives us symbols because he wants us to see something that could kill us. This is a sight that could undo you. It's like a a man that gets a piece of news and has a heart attack and dies. When you see this man, it's dangerous. Even the angels cover their face in the presence of God. John says this. The prophets say this. They say when they see the angels, the angels cover their face with their wings so that they don't look at him. And then they still cry out, holy, 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 but they're not looking at him. And John looks at him. And reality starts to dissolve. And John reaches for the Old Testament and uses these symbols to tell us what he sees. This isn't the man that John used to fish with. What he sees is a man on the throne of Almighty God. He says when he looked at the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man from the prophet Daniel. The son of man and the prophet Daniel sits on the throne of Almighty God. And what John sees bends reality. It bends reality. It should bend reality for us. Think about it. At this very moment as I speak, Jesus is in heaven. There's a Palestinian Jew in heaven. And he looks like his mother, Miriam. He has a name. He has human lungs. He has lips. He has emotions and feelings. He has memories. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he has memories of his childhood in Galilee. He has a Galilean accent. This is a human man. And one day... Every one of us will stand before him and we'll look him in the eyes and we'll see real human eyes. And it will be the only moment that ever mattered for any one of us. And so John sees him here. He's holding the power of death in his hands and John realizes, I knew him, but I never knew him. He says in verse 14, he says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. They burned with passion and discernment. His eyes were intense. When you look at Jesus, His gaze pierces your soul. This is not a weak man. This is not a dead man on a cross. His eyes were intense. This is a man that says, I am alive forevermore. So let me ask you, who were the people that Jesus spent the most time with in the Gospels. We're told by name who they were. Peter, James, and John. And do you know the nickname that Jesus gave them? He was so close with them, He gave them a nickname. If you were one of the twelve, you knew who the sons of thunder were. They were Peter, James, and John. Jesus called them the sons of thunder because they were hotheads. They were zealots. They were little firebrands. And they were idiots, but He loved them. He loved how passionate they were, how zealous they were. 
every time he retreats by himself, he takes the zealots with him. Have you seen that in the Gospels? On the mountain when he's transfigured. In the garden when he's weeping blood, the zealots are with him. He loved their zeal. These are the kind of people that comforted Jesus. He loved to be with these people. When he knew the last moments of his life were coming, he took these three and said, come with me and please pray. It's these three that he asked to pray. This is a man of zeal. This is a man whose eyes burn with intensity, but not against you. His eyes aren't burning with intensity in a way that will destroy you, but they're burning for you. That's why his feet are like burnished bronze in verse 15. You're thinking, what in the world? Bronze? What does bronze have to do with anything? But Israel's altar was made of bronze. It was burnished bronze. It was very particular, not just bronze. It had to be a particular kind of bronze. And Jesus' feet are like that, John says. And And so John is saying here, he's saying his feet are like bronze. Because he is the last altar. Jesus Christ was the last altar of the nation of Israel. Jesus was the last priest. Jesus was the last sacrifice. It should have been you on the cross. But he loved you. That's why his feet are like burnished bronze. It's because he loved you. And it's also why his eyes burn like a flame of fire. So, John has turned and he says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. He says he saw the lampstands. It says as well that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool. This is a man that has no beginning. His hair, the hairs of his head are white because his origin stretches back endlessly. You'll never find a beginning to this man. He has no birthday. This is a man who has always been and always will be. This is a man who always is and always will be. So finally, in verses 15 through 16, John tells us about Jesus' voice. He says it was like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. When John heard the voice, it was like a trumpet. But when he turned around, it was like a roaring waterfall. I don't know if any of you have heard of a, a roaring waterfall before. I remember when my wife and I lived in Minnesota, the largest continental waterfall is in the very north of Minnesota, which is one of the northernmost states. It's a massive waterfall. And I remember in winter, it was so loud. You, you had to yell to hear each other. It was roaring. It was overwhelmingly powerful. And that's what John says Jesus' voice was like. Overwhelmingly powerful to listen to. And here's where we see something truly strange in verse 16. John says he saw a sword coming from his mouth. He says he saw his face shining like the sun in full strength. 
And the sword is coming from his mouth. He's not holding it. I don't know if you noticed that. The sword isn't in his hand. It's coming from his mouth. Why? It's because this man speaks from a throne. When Jesus pronounces judgment, the verdict is eternal. When any ordinary judge pronounces a sentence, the verdict is final. When this man speaks, the verdict is eternal. Proverbs says death and life are in the power of the tongue. And John means that literally here. A sword came from his mouth. He's not holding the sword because he doesn't need a sword. He has a tongue. And so John looks at his face. He sees this man, the the hair, like the ancient of days, white as snow, the infinite origin stretching endlessly into eternity past. He sees his bronze feet. He sees him adorned in luxury. He hears his voice like a roaring waterfall. And then finally he looks at his face. And he says it was like the sun shining in full strength. When Moses beheld God, he put a veil over his face because the glory, he glowed in the dark. But then the, the glowing was dissipating slowly over time. But this man's face shines like the sun. It shines like the sun. John says he looked at Jesus' face and it was blinding. It was blinding. I mean, every one of us when we were little heard our parents say, don't look at the sun. We thought, I'm going to look at the sun. And then you look at the sun and then you have that, that spot in your eye for the next hour or two, right? If you keep looking, you'll go blind. But John looks just once and he collapses and falls down. Just a single glance at Jesus is so overwhelming that John collapses. Just a glance. Remember, John was speaking. He hears a voice. He turns around. He sees something and then he just falls to the ground. He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. So look with me, finally, at the benediction. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John looks at Jesus and sees the truth and the sight is so much it almost kills him. And this is the same man in the Gospels that said, I am gentle and lowly. There's only one time in the New Testament where Jesus says anything about his interior life, about his psychology. He says this, I am gentle and lowly. And yet he is this man. He is a man of profound majesty and glory. A man whose reality unravels the mind. And yet a man who has a heart. A man whose heart is tender. Jesus is not pure power. God is not pure power. That's Islam. That's not Christianity. God 
has a beating heart. That's what the gospel tells us. God loves us so deeply. He knows what it's like to be us from the inside. He has experienced everything it means to be human. And he's been victorious. And so the last thing John remembers is turning around and fainting. Think about it. John turns. He sees this sight. He just drops to the ground and faints. He's not conscious. The last thing he remembers is seeing this man. And when he opens his eyes, that same man has knelt down and put his hand on his shoulder and said, don't be afraid. And if you're John, you're thinking, why? Why should I not be afraid? Why should I not want to run in terror from you? And Jesus tells us, he says, I'm the reason. Look at verse 18. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus looks at John in his splendor and his glory, kneels down and says, don't be afraid. I am the reason. He's saying, I know what it's like to suffer. I even know what it's like to die. Why would it comfort John to hear, I died? John knows he died. He saw him die. Why would Jesus say that again? And it's because John is about to die. And Jesus is looking at John and saying, don't be afraid. I am with you. I know exactly what it's like to die. Jesus is never going to look at your life and say, I don't know what that's like. That's the comfort we have here. He's never going to look at your life and say, I have no idea what you're going through. His message to these churches is stand firm. I know exactly what you're going through and I have conquered. He's not, I mean, he's saying that your enemies don't even have a voice anymore. That's what it means when he says, I have the keys of death and Hades here in in verse 18. He's saying you have enemies and they can't even speak anymore because I have conquered. This is what David said in the Psalms. He says in Psalm 42, by this I know that you love me. My enemy shall not shout in triumph over me. What made John faint is what makes us invincible. This man that you see here, this image, this is your Lord. This is your King. And if he's alive at this very moment, then the worst day of your life is just the beginning of endless ages of bliss. That's the hope we have here. That's why John sees what he sees. It's why Jesus kneels down, puts his hand on John and says, don't be afraid. So there's two things I want us to take away from this passage. The first is a truth that in Jesus might and mercy meet. It's not amazing that Jesus is powerful. It's amazing that he loves me. I think that's what Paul meant. In Galatians 2, when he says about Jesus, he says, this one, this is the one who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I have given Jesus countless reasons not to love me. He knows all of the facts. And none of them have mattered to him. The same eyes that paralyzed John with their intensity and their passion look for ways to love you. He searches for reasons to bless you. It says in Jeremiah, it says he he invents ways to be good to you, to bless you, to encourage you, to lift you up. I mean, do you think the God of the gospel doesn't care about you? A God who would become a human man, who would condescend himself into utter humiliation to bring you to himself. Does he really not care? How could we believe that? This man was born to die. God became a child so that he might die. That's what the gospel tells us. That's why his name is Jesus. I mean, the Bible tells us his name is Jesus because the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. Do you realize what that means? God has a body. That's incredible enough. But not only does he have a body, he has a name. And his name means salvation. When Jesus was born, the gospel became God's name. This isn't a picture of pure power. This isn't Islam. This is tenderness. This is a man of might and mercy. And this is why the gospel is good news. It should have been you on the cross. Everyone sitting in this room this morning might have gone to hell forever if it weren't for him. I know that sounds intense. But it's what Christians have always believed. And eternity is not going to contain only comfortable truths. Most of what we know about hell comes from Jesus. But it's the same Jesus we see here. It's the God who came for us. It's the God whose feet are like burnished bronze because he was the last altar. He was the final sacrifice. That's what the gospel says. You really are loved with a love that you could never fathom. You'll spend an eternity of eternities exploring every dimension of the profound, infinite depths of this love. The final takeaway is that you were made for fascination. So don't settle for entertainment. The world wants you. It wants to harvest your attention. And it wants to transform that attention into revenue. And the best way to get revenue is to get your soul. It's to steal from you everything that matters most in your life. How many millions of people are going to get to their deathbed and realize they spent years of their life on their iPhone? The world wants you to say, yes, you can have five hours a day of my life to sell me and change me. And you wonder, how do they do it? How did they persuade us to give so much of our lives to them? I'll tell you how they use pictures. Your phone, billboards, movies, commercials. Our world is a plague of pictures. And every picture is giving a message. It's sending a message. This is what's good. This is what's true. This is what's beautiful. Believe this. Care about this. Be an activist about this. But God has pictures too. And that's what we see in Revelation 1. God's picture is meant to undeceive you. Their pictures will deceive you. Their pictures will steal your soul and leave your corpse on the ground. But God's picture invites you. 
God's picture says, come and see what you were made for. Come behold the beauty and the majesty of this man. You were made for fascination. So look at him. See him. Jesus is, as one Puritan said, he's an only one. He's matchless. And that's why our first reading came from the Song of Songs. You probably thought, what does this have to do with Revelation 1? But did you see what the daughters asked? They said, why is your beloved more than another beloved? And in Revelation 1, you see John's answer. John says he's an only one. That's why. So when was the last time you fell on your face and worshipped before him? When was the last time you simply adored him? You just closed the door to your room and just spent a half hour adoring him. You didn't even ask for anything. He already knows what you need. You just adored him. You can't be intimate with doctrines. Theology will never love you back. I have met so many people that think reading theology is knowing God. Or they think learning lots of doctrines, being expert on confessions, knowing everything about historical theology is what it means to know God. You're not gonna, your historical theology is not gonna matter when you stand before Him on the day of judgment. Everything you did in your PhD isn't going to matter. What's gonna matter is did you know Him? Did you know Him? Theology will never love you back. Theology can comfort you when it leads you to a person. A person that will be with you until the very end. Until the end of the age. You are meant to look at Him and to never look away. You were meant to look at Him and to say, this one is my beloved. So what are you looking for that you can't find in Him? What do you want that Jesus doesn't have? We spend so much of our life searching. We spend so much of our life, those of you who are older, you know this, you look back at your younger years, you look back at your years when you were my age, and you realize, I just kept wanting and wanting, and I was searching, and I was searching, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and it never came, because I had everything that mattered most in Christ. We spend so much of our life searching, but no one is going to get to the end of their life, stand before Christ, and say, I wish I had loved you less. When the first great awakening broke out in the colonies in America, people were exploding with enthusiasm and excitement. It was a frenzy. There's all kinds of weird stuff. But there's a lot of what seemed like very genuine stuff too. It was a frenzy. And so not everyone was a fan. Some people thought that those who were involved in the great awakening were too enthusiastic. They were too caught up in their emotions. And they needed to calm down. And actually a huge part of Yale, the faculty at Yale, thought that the students were getting too involved in the Great Awakening. They needed to calm down, don't get too excited. And so you know they called Jonathan Edwards. And they asked Jonathan Edwards to deflate the students' enthusiasm. They asked him to come speak to the students. And tell them, calm down. Don't be so enthusiastic. And you know, Jonathan Edwards wrote back, and he says, if this isn't a work of God, 
I need to learn my religion all over again. Because I don't even know how to use the Bible if this isn't a work of God. Your heart matters. Your attention matters. So don't give it to anything else. Give your heart to Him. Give Him your attention, your life. Do everything you can to cultivate a burning, intense, fiery heart of passion for Christ. You'll never regret it. Amen.